Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who's made his Major League Baseball debut in 1984 for the Mets, quickly established himself as one of the league's most talented pitchers. As a 19-year-old rookie, he earned the first of four All-Star selections, won the National League Rookie of the Year, led the league in strikeouts. In 1985, he won the National League Cy Young Award winner. Um, he had one of the greatest single seasons of any Met pitcher in their history, which is a story, you know, franchise with pitchers. Um, 24 and 4 record, league leading 1.53 ERA, 268 strikeouts, 16, get that, 16 complete games. You don't even get that, that in the National you know, right, you don't anymore. Have the entire league. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Complete 16 complete games. Just, just listen to that one more time. Following season, he helped the Mets win the 1986 World Series. The name instantly brings a smile to any New York Mets fan. It's a pleasure to welcome the man I get to spend a week every year with at Met Fantasy Camp. AJ, you're going to have that opportunity this year as well. The one and only Dr. K himself, Dwight Gooden. Welcome, Doc. Hey guys, how you guys doing? Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, we're doing great because we're speaking to you, and it's a perfect night to speak to you too because there's so much going on with the Mets, and, and you are, you know, for all the three major points we want to talk to, you are perfect for this. First, let's start off with the Mets announcement earlier this week um, when they announced that they are transferring long-term media relations, uh, public relations boss Jay Horowitz to a new role as vice president of alumni public relations and team historian. You, as well as Mookie Wilson, Keith Hernandez, John Franco, Joe Torre, Terry Collins, Steve Phillips, Daryl Strawberry, Omar Minaya were on hand, uh, including David Wright. Omar Minaya um, was there in his, you know, we don't know what his role is right. yet as well. And his role uh, going forward. forward. Yeah. Now, Jay has spent 40 years with the team. What are yes. your, some of your favorite Jay Horowitz's stories from your Mets tenure, and how did Jay differ from some of the other public relation guys you dealt with with the Yankees and some of your other stops along the way? I know for me, um, I was very happy for Jay. Like you say, he's been there for, for a long, long time. He was there before I got there. And Jay made my job a lot easier. Like you guys mentioned at the beginning of the show, I was blessed with the words I, I, I won. And I remember um, 1984 after the All-Star break, there was a lot of media requests for me, even the days that I wasn't pitching. And Jay would always tell me that. Jay would always come to me first and let me know who wants to talk to me, uh, what they want to talk about. And if I wanted to talk, he would set it up. If I didn't want to talk, he would, he would be a bad guy and say, I'm not available, what have you. And then obviously in 1985, it was so much media stuff because of the season I was having. We only mostly did the media stuff on the days that would pitch. Occasionally, if it was like someone from ESPN or, you know, um, Science Magazine or something like that, that normally is not there at the ballpark every day, Jay would set that up in a Jets locker room at the Chase Stadium and do it that way. But he made my job a lot easy, easier. And um, it was good to be there to support Jay. I mean, he made everybody's job easier. He was always fight for you and do everything for you. And we became good friends afterwards. And I remember even my parents would come to town. They always made sure they will stay in the hotel. They had a good room to stay, uh, whether it was on the road or in New York. Made sure they were comfortable, you know, in the stands. They had security right there with them. Jay was a big part. He did more than what a PR guy normally does. And I think the thing that separated him from the other guys that I had, which was a great guy for the organization as well, was that Jay went over and beyond in what his job called for. I mean, if you needed a car, if you needed to rent a car, if you needed, if you had somebody come on the road, if you needed tickets, still today, if you need tickets away or somebody needs tickets, G 
James is always there for you. He's a guy that you can call on anytime, anything to do on baseball, or sometimes just to talk. And, you know, James is a good friend of mine as well, and just a good guy, and I'm glad he's standing with the Mets and standing a part of the Mets and being a part of alumni now, which is where he started. A lot of guys hopefully are bringing a lot of us back now, getting us more involved with the team, whether it's spring training or during the season with the fans or some something said on the captaincy when we're in Baltimore. I think that would be great for baseball, especially in New York Mets. Base. You know, it's so interesting you mentioned that he was more than a public relations you know, figure, and you put it perfectly. You tweeted right away, not sure if they put anyone from public relations into the Hall of Fame, but if anyone belongs there, it's Jay Horowitz of the New York Mets. If not, worst case scenario, Major League Baseball should definitely have an award in Jay's name, as he is, was truly the best and even better guy. And it's interesting, you know, to a man, anyone you speak to, you take a look at John Franco, and Jay's nature is, I mean, he definitely loves his job. I mean, there's not a day where I go to cover the team that he's not in the dugout, and he's always got a smile on. But, you know, he also allows himself to be the butt of jokes from the players in a way that, you know, he still remains dignified in doing that. How dignified can be with ice cream sandwiches right, in your pocket? Right, or, or, or his tie when he falls asleep being cut. Right, like, how important is that personality you know, well, I think it's great for a guy. I'm sorry, not to catch up, but for a guy in the position, I think it's great because in the clubhouse, you guys have been on the clubhouse before, in the locker rooms, I mean, anything goes. It's, no, it's nothing about ratio. It's nothing about that stuff. You see all kinds of jokes with each other. And Jay was great with that. We played jokes on Jay all the time. <laughs> but we knew But when he got down to business and serious, Jay can flip the switch as well and get serious when it came to the media or dealing with, you know, important issues. So he was like a part of the team. And when I say a part of the team, Still like one of the guys, even though he had a different job title. But he was one of us on the road a lot of times. You have to eat with the players. A lot of times the prophets didn't like that too much because they thought he was too close to the players. But that was just Jay's personality. Like you say, he didn't, he didn't mind being the, you know, the butt of the joke. I mean, so many jokes about Jay. I remember being on the road. It's like every time we went to on the road, Jay used to like to go early and go jogging. But every time he'd come to the ballpark, he'd been bit by another dog. But, I mean, <laughs> there's so many things you could get on Jay about. But at the same time, everybody had the utmost respect for Jay. And we would do anything for Jay like he would for us. Yeah, flipping this, uh, you know, the topic a little bit. For me, as a Met fan this year, I, I know that you know, getting off to that great start, maybe people had higher expectations. For me, right now, I'm happy with the way the season went because the Mets right now are 69 wins, which is one less yeah, than they had of all last season. All right. The Mets hired Mickey Calloway and Dave Island to improve the pitching staff, who last year had a staff ERA of over five. It's now in the fours. So. Let's first start. You're a pitcher. You see what's going on with these two guys. What do you think? Because it's pretty much the yeah, same cast of characters. It, it, let's not. Let, let's stick with the starters. What do you see? The biggest improvement out of the starters. You know, what did these two guys have an effect on the staff? I think the one thing, especially I'll, I'll start with Dave Allen. He's a guy I work with. You know, we worked together for a while with the Yankees when I retired down in Tampa. And he challenged these guys from the get go about pitching inside. And I like the fact that. Sitting was pitching well, and you know, there's a lot of stuff about. And he said, you know, this guy hadn't really done nothing yet. So basically, he didn't want these guys to settle for what way they are each time they're out. He's challenging them to get better and improve. And I think that shows off because he's not one of the guys that's going to hold a hand. Each start, he's going to challenge them as a man, and I'm sure the pitchers want that. I think a big part also that um, Zach Willer, who's finally healthy now after those years of coming back from Tommy John, now we're finally getting to see the real Zach Willer that we got when we traded um, Beltran to the Giants. So these guys are coming to your own. And, I mean, you have three number ones, and Stephen Mastin be a number two, number three. 
with any staff and, and uh, easily be number two once he gets more consistently. And as fun as he's got, and like I said, with Callaway um, coming in as well, his track record shows what he did with the Indian staff. Not coming in, even though he's a manager, but he shows a leadership role. He's like how to do his thing with the pitchers. But he's also a boss to have right there as well. And another guy I think we got a lot of credit is um, Ricky Bonus and down in the bullpen working on the relievers. And, you know, myself, um, I just say I'm a Met at heart, always a Mets fan, New York fan. But with me, hopefully they can keep the staff intact, the five guys they have. And Vargas pitched a lot better at the end and just kind of, you know, touch up the bullpen and, you know, get everybody healthy again. And I'll take my chances because these pitchers are strong. So let's talk about the bullpen for a second. Because you can could you, you, well, you know you can <laughs> say the glass is half full or, 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 or much more than half empty. That the bullpen has been a problem, frustration. But the one thing that happened this year is they started rotating through and calling up the guys they got in the trades in the past you know year, mostly last year when they did the fire sale last year. Doc, how do you see? Do you see hopeful signs out of what happened with the young relievers in the bullpen, or do you really think they have to start doing in the off season, you know, an overhaul of the bullpen? The personnel should be one of the main tasks. And let me add one other layer on that, because don't forget, next year, hopefully, you get Rafael Montero back from his surgery, and you get Henry Mejia, Mejia back. Yeah. So you go ahead, Dwight. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, getting those two guys back, and Mejia's um, been out for a while. You know, he's going to bring him, but if he's healthy, I think he's going to be okay. And like I said, get Montero back from Tommy John and Lonely. These guys pitch better and throw harder on Tommy John. So these two guys are healthy. And just the bullpen, I just think, you know, I'm an old-school guy. I just think myself with the new analytics and they don't want to start us facing the, the um, start lineup, more, you know, the third time around. I think they put too much emphasis in that because, for me, they're wearing the bullpen out. By, you know, every day these guys are coming in to pitch all the time. I think that's too much. I was stressed to start it out more, especially the way these guys are throwing. It's nothing wrong with these guys going seven innings or more than 100 pitches, but it seems like as soon as the third, you know, Time of the lineup comes around, or these guys get to 100 pitches or around the seventh inning, it's automatically get the bullpen up. I don't think that's that necessarily important, especially you know in the middle of the season. These guys, you got to build them up because in the long run, it's going to hurt your bullpen. And throughout baseball, if you look around all these clubs, all these bullpens are starting to struggle towards the middle of the season, towards the end. I think that has a lot to do with it. Just kind of stress the relief. I mean, stress the starts out before, a little longer because to me, you have the best three starters in baseball, in my opinion. You know, you know with Syndergaard. You know, DeGrom and Willard and Steven Matz is, a, you know, close number two and number three starter with a staff as well. With those guys, I mean, stretch them out. Let them go seven, eight innings. Which appears he's, he's been, he's been, which doing, appears been you, doing you know, that. One of the big differences also between when, when you pitched and now has to do with the hitting and has to do with the base, basically the analytics, the launch angle, and it's, it's home runner basically nothing. That you don't see, yep. you see, and you don't see pitchers pitching to contact, uh, to something trying to strike people out because the, the batters, I'll hit a home runner strike out. How do you think that's changed pitching? Do you see any of that turning around soon? That pitchers and hitters saying, "Let's pitch to contact." Let's make con-. you look, you know, look what's going on with uh, with Neil, and, and you know, he's a, he's a contact hitter. Rosario started to be a contact hitter. How much do you see that changing the, the dynamic, the balance between pitching and hitting? That's another great point. Now, like you said, um, all the hitters, like you say, the lunch angles and these pitches, obviously, the strikeouts are up. I think the walks are probably up too, and nobody's playing the small ball where you got hit and run, find the guy over, stealing bases. That game's out. And last year, it showed, like in the World Series with Dodgers and Astros, the bullpens were done. Nobody can move runners over, so it's like all or nothing. You know, just everybody's swinging for the fences. And me personally, as a pitcher, you're taught to attack. And I know towards the end of my career, um, especially more so when I was with Cleveland, the, the scout reports are like phone books. I mean, they tell you, don't throw the guy this. You can't throw the guy this. You can't throw the guy that. Where, on the other hand, your pitchers are taught to attack with your best. And now, you got all these pitchers throwing 97, 98. 
if a guy's a good fastball hitter, so what? If you're throwing a hard, uh, located fastball is the best pitch in baseball. Attack these guys until they show you that they can hit it, then you make the adjustment. I think, like you said, they know these guys are swinging for the fences, so it's too much trying to trick them. You're showing all your pitches the first inning where you're throwing 97 and 8. A lot of times you can get by if you're locating fastball by just throwing fastball the first three, four innings, especially the way these guys are swinging. It's not really contact hitters anymore. Everybody's swinging for the fences. So I think the advantage would be in the pitcher's hands if they pitch more to the strength instead of the scout reports. There's too much with the scout reports, I think, for the pitchers. Just it, my opinion. Interesting you said that. Now, you go back to that magical season that we described that you had. And, and let's throw today's baseball into it. If the Mets had the amount of analytic data that they had and employed shifts during that season, do you think you might have even won more games? Um, probably. If, if, if you take my season then and put it to the way baseball is now, I probably wouldn't have. And it might sound crazy, crazy saying that. Only because you had more shifts. I only had two pitches. I only had a fastball and a curveball. It wasn't like, you know, throwing any change-ups or split fingers or sliders or anything like that. And the other thing was, in that situation, I would have been coming out a lot of games, five, six minutes, because once I get the 100 pitches or facing right. a lot of the third time around, they've been taking me out. So I've done a lot, of, a lot of those decisions as well to that point. And boys, um, all the shifts on it, I'm not really a fan of that. I mean, a little bit, I understand. But I think some of just, you know, it's a little too much, I think. It's a little overkill. Totally agree. One of the biggest story as far as the pitching, and in case you just tuned in and, and you're not aware of the voice, you're not a Met fan, but we're talking to Dwight Gooden. But one of the biggest stories of the pitching staff is obviously Jacob DeGrand's pursuit of the Cy Young Award. So even if Jacob you know, runs the table at this point, he might max out at 12 wins, all right? Not even, not even. He just went three more starts, Three right? more. Yeah, so 11, 11 right? right? But it depends if he does one on short rest. If they really, and, yeah. you know, he conceivably yeah. could even have a losing record. Um, yeah. But he'll have a sub-2 ERA, most likely. Um, the Seattle Mariners, you know, Felix Hernandez uh, earned the American League Cy Young Award despite a 13-12 and 12 record that year he had yeah. the... Uh, Major League leading 2.27 ERA. Superior stats put him ahead of Tampa Bay at that point, David Price, and at that point, New York Yankees' CC Sabathia, uh, who had bitter wins and loss records. So do you think that Jacob can possibly win an ER, a Cy Young Award with a, either a losing record or maybe a 500 record and 10 wins? Do, do you think that's conceivable? I mean, that's, that's a very good point. I mean, you guys are right on it. Um, me personally, I might be a little biased and say yes because I'm a pitcher and a full mentor and obviously a grown fan. But the thing is, my thing about I watched a lot of his stats and the numbers that sticks out more to me with Jacob is, you know, that he had the what the 26 consecutive starts with three runs or less. less. Yeah. 27 now. 27 yes, today, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is a record, major league record, right? Yeah. Okay, you got the record now with that. And to me, that's the biggest stat that sticks out because the things that he can control as a pitcher, he dominated. The only thing that he couldn't control the pitchers wins and losses. Obviously, unfortunately, he pitched on the wrong days where they just didn't happen to score and runs. So I think me personally, if his ERA, which I think it will, if it stays in the ones the rest of these you know, two, three starts, I think you have to get him to Cy Young. Now, if he happens to get in the twos with his ERA, then I think, okay, it's debatable with um, Scherzer, obviously, with his overall stats you know, and all the numbers. I would think it's out of him and Scherzer. But if his ERA stays in the ones, to me, I understand what the win-loss record doesn't look right there, but especially now, the way analytics is and the way the game has changed so much, I still think you have to give it to DeGrom. Let me, for a minute, put you in his head. As a pitcher, okay, you go out and you do this. Start after start after start. 
You get zero run production. Does that frustration, I, I know the bottom line is, as a, a team guy, you, you do your job and you hope for the best, but at some point, does a level of frustration build and almost well, like... The question, when you, when you go after to start, how much does it affect you at the next start saying, you know, I have to pitch this is going happen again, yeah. I have to pitch a shutout, right. and even then, I may leave the game in a nothing-nothing nothing game, right. Oh, it, it, it's very tough. Um, two parts to that. I think it's very tough, especially like say, like the first six or seven consecutive games, it's very frustrating. I mean, to a point where you don't even want to talk to your teammates. I remember the games where if I got, I had a bike-to-bike game where I pitched nine shutout innings, I got no decisions. I didn't even want to speak to my teammates. I mean, it's just a, and not that it's just a selfish, but just the fact that you're so frustrated. So I'm sure like the first six or seven consecutive starts where they didn't get him any runs, and, you know, like I said, he gave up two runs or less and got a no decision or a loss. Very, very frustrated. And when you go out there, you're pitching the first inning like it's the seventh inning. You're pitching each hitter like, you know, it's 0-2. Count right off the bat. Each inning, you know, I can't give up anything, no matter who the opposing pitcher is, that you would probably not going to get any runs. No disrespect to your teammates, but that is the way it is. Now, here's the tricky part. It's just my opinion. Now, I think it might get to the point where once you get to, like, after those stars, seven, eight stars where he's not getting runs, now he knows he's in contention because we all read the papers. We all listen to the talk shows as players, whether we're admitted or not. Now you say, okay, i got to keep my ERA down or I'm setting these records. Now you say, okay, the team's not going anywhere. Our one-loss record probably ain't going to get me to maybe, say, I'm talking maybe like 10 stars ago, maybe to 12, 13 wins. So now, when I go out there, let me just shut the other team down. Even though I, I want to win deep down, I want to win, but my main concern now is just shut this other team down. But whether or not, it's not as important now as is me pitching, you know, putting up zeros, if that makes sense. Now, you mentioned something in the beginning of that. You said that as, you know, these starts start going that way, you're pitching the first inning like it's the seventh inning. And I've heard a lot of talk about that, you know, it's not so much pitch count. It's the pressure of the pitches, all right, and, and the high way. High leverage pitches. High yeah. leverage pitches. Now, it, you know, I watched your entire career. To me, you look the same in the first inning as you did in the seventh inning. Is there any validity to that, that there are high-leverage pitches that tax you, that there might be one particular bat that totally drains you during a game? Oh, oh definitely. I mean, if you pitch in a situation where there's compliment on base, second and third, uh, first and third, and the top hitters are up or hitters that get in trouble up, and you got to bear down each inning to make pitches, that takes more total on you, say, if you throw 100 pitches, where men are constant base, opposed to if you're throwing 100 pitches, you know, and you're tracking a lot of guys out. Totally different. Or, like you said, sometimes, like, if it's the middle of the game, it could be fifth, sixth inning, not that you're really holding back. Like, say a guy like Verlander turns it up a notch, do nothing to the seventh inning. But you're making your pitches, you know, a certain situation, you add a little bit on your fastball, you make them sound a little tighter. Now, you get, like, fifth, sixth inning where, say it's a single, then it's a hit batter, and then the number three hitter coming up, and it's a 1-1 ball game, sixth, seventh inning, and that hitter's following some tough pitches. They turn to a 12-pitch at bat. Now that, that batter can take something out of you completely. I totally agree with what you're saying there. And at that point, the next inning is a big inning where the pitch coach has to play, pay close attention. If you get two quick outs, okay, you're fine. But if you start struggling with the first two guys, I would definitely get somebody up because that's a sign of trouble where that one at bat definitely took some out of you. You know, we've seen this with, with DeGrom. Uh, he goes up, and sometimes the only run they scored is he bats it in. <laughs> So, and, and you, I've heard wow. you're a pretty good yeah. hitting pitcher. Do you feel any pressure in a game like that that you not only have to pitch, but you have to hit? Oh, you're aware of it. Um, 
And I'm sure in his situation where he was actually drafted as a hitter, obviously in Pampas, it was, it was times in my situation where we weren't scoring runs, probably like more so like for me, like in the, say like 90, 91 season where our offense went too good. When I came up the bat, certain situations, I would definitely go for the fence. I mean, not saying I was that great hitter or anything like Baumgartner, but at certain times, I would intentionally, I'll admit it now, but I wouldn't admit it then, but a bunt sign, I would totally pretend I missed the sign and take my shot <laughs> for the fence. <laughs> I would definitely do that. Hey, Doc. Uh, so hey. I'm sure in his mind, or some of those pitchers' mind, that when you're hitting, you're aware, especially with mental base, that you have to bear down more at the plate opposed to just saying, okay, let me just you know take the strike out so I get back in the dugout, get ready for the next inning. <laughs> but it all plays a part. Even running the bases, everything becomes a big thing. It's more like playing a total game now where – I mean, you're not just pitching, you're, you're hitting, you make sure you get the bunt down. you got to run the bases, make sure you take care of the base, you pay attention for pass balls, all those things, which you should be doing anyway, but it becomes more important if the team's not really scoring runs. Hey, Doc, Ryan Sherman here. So quick point about the, the wins and losses, just a perspective. Sonny Gray has 11 wins, Jacob deGrom has eight. So I think like the wins and losses gets lost right. with the numbers and it's, it's the way that the game is now. Starts, absolutely. So right. going back to the conversation, though, about the um, – 27 straight starts in a row and the pressure that comes with that. I wanted to talk to you about the maybe relationship that he has with management and uh, the general management when every game he doesn't know who's in the lineup. And so I took a peek back at your 1985 season and the only player in that lineup who had under 100 games was Mookie Wilson. And then the guys in the lineup besides that are guys like Lenny Dykstra and Ray Knight and Danny Heap. And so then you look at this year's roster one of the guys who's in the ninth spot there is Jose Reyes, who's hitting under 200, and he's played 200 or 100-something games. So the continuity of knowing who's in the lineup every day, how important is that, that you know your guys are there with you? I think that plays a part. I think it's probably more important knowing that the catcher you have, that you have a good relationship and can communicate well, more so with the catchers than, than the other guys that are around you. I mean, it plays a part with the other guys around you because you're aware if your defense is strong, if certain guys are shortstop, Certain guys in center field for his middle infield, you're aware of those guys who are back there. That plays in your head as well. But more important is the catcher. Who's catching you each time that you're comfortable with? Like a lot of times, pitchers may say, oh, it doesn't matter. But it does matter. You want somebody that you're very comfortable with, communicate well. You know, you, have, you guys have good understanding whether the catcher's hit or not. He's still going to give you 100% behind the plate. You're going to communicate between innings. You're going to talk about what's working, what's not working, and be able to make adjustments during the game. I think that's very important. More so who's catching you opposed to the rest of the guys that are behind you. But, you know, now, with the, like you go back to like how they got the analytics, the lineups change all the time. Looking at numbers, who, you know, who hits what off of what pitcher. More so that opposed to putting a good defense behind a great pitcher like the Grom. I think that's the way the game has changed now. Interesting that you said that, considering the revolving door to, to two Absolutely. Mets starting pit yeah. catchers got injured, then Mazzarocco, and then so. All right, lastly, Thursday, the Mets and David Wright announced that Saturday, September 29th, David Wright will take the field one last time, a choice that was not easy for a player who tried so hard to get back. What is it like mentally when you know as a player that your playing days are nearing its end? That's very tough. I know um, for me in 2000, I started, a lot of people don't know, I pitched. I started with Astros, right. had one start with Houston, got traded to Tampa, had eight starts, then I got released. Um, the phone wasn't ringing, had nothing going on, and then Mr. Steinbrenner called me, and I signed back with the Yankees. I was living in Tampa at the time, and I went up to the complex in Tampa, pitched a couple of games on record ball, didn't do nothing. So at that point, you're aware, you're totally aware in my situation, I thought my career was over just because my stuff wasn't good enough. 
unfortunately in Davis' situation is because of injuries. I think um, with injuries, it's very tough because once you accustom, even when your stuff is not really there, you're used to play at a high level. And when you tasted that success, like he's had winning the Silver Sluggers, winning Gold Gloves, putting on the numbers he's put up, now you can't get on the field and the team's having success like they did. He did come back in 15 for the World Series, but last year he hasn't been there. You're working out, and like he mentioned, one day you feel great, and the next two days you can't get out of bed. It's very frustrating, and it's sort of playing on your mind. One of you, I'm going to get back. And then it comes to a point where now, in his situation, um, just my opinion, knowing that he's going to play one more game, like you say, he wants to see his kids one, he wants his kids to see him play. He wants to do it one more time at City Field in front of the fans. But knowing that's going to be your last game, it's got to be very, very, very hard um, to accept emotionally. I mean, you play through the what ifs, you play through all things that comes to this. He's still a very young guy. He's still, you know, a young man. What is he going to do? rest of his life because baseball is the old thing. And as a baseball player or athlete, you never, when you start and you're having a success, you never see the end coming until you're ready to step out. And in my situation, going back to that, I got the opportunity to join the Yankees um, the second half of the season in 2000. I got the pitch of City of six, well, Shea Stadium the one last time. That's what I wanted. Um, the day-night double hitter with a night game at Yankee Stadium. Damn. Won that and then stayed on the roster. Won the World Series, and then the next year in spring training, I was pitching, but the stuff just went there, and I retired and went to work with the Yankees. So it's somewhat on my own terms in a way, but at the same time, I knew I was at the point where I couldn't get hitters out that I used to get out, where the stuff just wasn't there anymore, and it feels good. So it comes to a point where it's very hard. Um, you look back at it, and you understand it was more of a privilege to play Major League Baseball than I deserved it or earned it. I think a lot of guys get that term mixed up. It's a privilege to play baby baseball, and then everything that comes with it, the friendships you develop, the relationships you develop last a, long, a lifetime. And David had a great career, and me as a fan and as a friend of David, I hate to say it comes that, but I'm glad he gets to play that one more time in front of his family. Well, you mentioned that you got to make that last start at, at Shea Stadium as a Yankee as part of that day-night doubleheader. What do you think the feeling will be for David when he takes the field in front of a, a sold-out city field on the 29th? most likely with Jose Reyes next to him as well at shortstop, the two guys that electrified you know, the New York fan base when they showed up. What, what do you think that day is going to mean to him? I think it's a situation where he's going to reminisce where he took away first got drafted, when he first played his rookie, um, rookie game, his first day at Shea Stadium, um, taking the field at City Field, first at bat. He's going to replay in his head a lot of the firsts that took place, a lot of the standing ovations he got, first home run, game winning home runs. Uh, diving plays, all-star games, World Series appearance. I think he's going to replay all that in his head the day of the game as well as why he's out on the field. And hope he can enjoy it. And uh, obviously it's going to be very emotional, I would imagine. But um, hopefully while he's out there, he gets to reminisce all the good things that he had in his career and all the, the joy he brought to a lot of families and a lot of families' homes. So funny that you mentioned he's going to remember his first. I know from spending time with you down in Port St. Lucie, that every single time you go in there, it just brings back that memory from your first, you know, camp and all that. And, you know, it's pretty amazing. And I look forward to spending time with you down at Port St. Lucie again. But before we let you go, I know you're a huge football fan. You're looking forward to the Giants game tonight. So who's winning the game and why? Giants going to win tonight. Uh, the Giants play well in Dallas. I mean, last year they didn't play that well. Mm-hmm. But they're hungry. I thought the first game in Jacksonville, they could have won that game. A couple mistakes here and there was a difference. But, um... It's a big game, and today everybody lost in the division. The Redskins yes. lost, the Eagles yeah. lost. Right. Yes. Giants have to have this game. This is a must-win. I think Eli's aware of that. I think the guys going to be ready. 
Go Big Blue. If the offensive line shows up, I think they have yeah, a chance. Exactly. All right, Dwight, thanks so much for your time. Looking forward to seeing you in uh, January. Yeah, looking forward to seeing you guys as well, buddy. You got to see the good work is. Thanks for having me. You got it. Be good, Doc. All right, buddy. Dwight Gooden, member of the 1986 World Championship New York Mets.